Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 2. Enter the Dragon. The ringtone of my cell phone sounded annoyingly like the beep the backhoe made when backing up. I managed to retrieve the phone from my nightstand and lay it next to my ear without prying open my eyes. Hello, Gretchen, I growled into the handset. Good morning, August, said a playful voice. How'd you know it was me? The jury's still out on this cell phone business. I haven't given the number to anybody else. Well, let me be the first to welcome you to the 20th century. But in case you hadn't noticed, this is the 21st. Gretchen Sabatini was my secretary, confidant, gal Friday, and one-time fiancé. She was also on a mission to cure me of my Luddite ways. As a private investigator, not having a cell phone had become more and more of a bother and on a recent case, had almost cost the life of a very good friend. Gretchen hadn't even waited for me to come to the obvious conclusion. She simply signed me up for the service one day and left the phone on my desk. Thanks for the update on the time, I said, but could you be a little more specific than the century? It's 11.20, and you're waking me up after four hours of sleep because... A fiendish giggle spilled out of the phone. Because you're having tea with Lenora Lee at the Lee Family Association building at 1 p.m. Tell her I'll take a rain check. I'm rotating my tires. No can do. Her secretary was quite insistent. It might be a coincidence, but there's also a great picture of the Lee building on the front page of the Chronicle website this morning. The article suggests that a certain San Francisco P.I. had a hand in recent remodeling activities. I blinked open my eyes and rolled over to look at the ceiling. A dilapidated spiderweb clinging to the light fixture hovered and danced in the ambient breeze. I said, Doesn't anyone read the paper on paper anymore? Online is better for breaking stories, said Gretchen. Thank you for that. Well, I'll let you get gussied up for your meeting. Miss Lee's secretary emphasized that she expects the dress of visitors to be appropriate for a formal business occasion and that she's a stickler on punctuality. And her lair, I mean her office, of course, is in the penthouse. I thanked Gretchen in a less than sincere fashion and hung up to look in my closet for my confirmation suit. I lived on the top floor of a four-story building on the corner of Post and Hyde. Although it was late November, and Northern California had already gotten more than enough precipitation for the ski resorts in Tahoe to open early, it was an unusually clear and cold day, and I decided to walk the dozen or so blocks to Chinatown. I also decided the short pants that went with my confirmation suit weren't appropriate, so I settled on a charcoal three-button number that Gretchen had picked out for me when we were still seeing each other, and a wool and cashmere blend topcoat she bought for me to go with it. As long as we stayed above the ankles, I was looking pretty good, but my socks had holes, 
and my shoes were the same scuffed wingtips I always wore. I figured there was a limit to the sartorial splendor I was willing to expend for a meeting where I was going to get yelled at. I went down post, past the newly designed Union Square with its vast multicolored granite promenade that made people look like pieces on a chessboard, hung a left on Grant, and came up to the green-tiled gate that led into Chinatown. The streets around the square had been fairly thick with Christmas shoppers, but they were pikers compared to the dedicated ranks of souvenir-hunting tourists moving up and down Grant after I got through the gate. Wall-to-wall stores on both sides of the street were set up to cater to them. You could bag your limit cheaply in the shops that specialized in back scratchers, paper parasols, skull caps with fake cues, and purses that looked like Chinese takeout boxes. But the bigger game was to be found in the places that sold antiques, artwork, jade and coral jewelry, and silk ching-song dresses with slit skirts and mandarin collars. I elbowed my way along the sidewalk, and sometimes the gutter when I couldn't get by, up to the intersection with California, where the old St. Mary's Church stood. An inscription in large gold letters on the clock tower read, Sun, Observe the time and fly from evil, apparently intended for those who frequented the 19th century brothels across the street. It drove home the point that I was already five minutes late for my appointment with the dragon lady. I half walked, half jogged the rest of the way up the street to the Lee Family Association building. The backhoe was gone, broken glass from the window had been swept from the sidewalk, and plywood sheeting had been nailed in the window frame to cover the damage. A street musician sitting on a stool in the courtyard at the side of the building played a two-string Chinese violin, nodding and smiling at me as I double-checked the directory for Lenora Lee's office. She was in the penthouse, as Gretchen had said, but there were 11 other floors of Lee Family Enterprises on the way. These included the damaged gallery, offices for a Chinese-language newspaper, a real estate development firm, and just below the penthouse, a gourmet magazine-reviewed restaurant called the Jade Phoenix. I dropped a buck in the jar of the violin player and walked further back into the courtyard to a pair of elevators. After a little bit of trial and error, it became apparent that the closest one didn't go to the penthouse, and I needed to pick up a red phone on the wall next to the other to be let up. The phone rang for a long moment, and then I heard a woman say something like, Li Hao? I figured that for hello, but that didn't buy me much. Sorry, I said. I don't speak Chinese. No problem, said the same woman. Is this Mr. Reardon? Yes. Is this Ms. Lee? She laughed pleasantly. It is, but not the one you think. I'll open the elevator for you. Press the button marked P. I started to say thank you, but she had already hung up. I replaced the phone, waited for the elevator doors to clang open, and then took a quick ride to the top. The room I stepped into was walled in glass on two sides, affording spectacular views of North Beach, Telegraph Hill, the financial district, and the bay. But the view inside was even better. A paralyzingly beautiful Chinese woman waited for me by the elevator. She wore a red linen dress with black and white beading around the collar and a short matching jacket with the same beads around the cuffs and the outer edge. I expected it came from Paris or Milan, and I knew it didn't come cheap. Her hair fell to her shoulders and curled back in a soft lip that made me think of the 1960s, but looked swell anyway. Her face was angular with high cheekbones and was exquisite as all get out, her figure lithe and shapely. A scent of something light and floral emanated from her like a warm glow. She curled her lips into the tiniest of smiles 
and I thought I'd been given the high sign for the rapture. Mr. Reardon, she said. That's the old me, I said. I think I've been transported to a higher plane. Her eyebrows went up a fraction of an inch. Really? Are you sure you just didn't get off on the wrong floor? She must have seen something in my face, because she continued almost immediately. Kidding. May I take your coat? It's cold outside, isn't it? I peeled off the top coat and passed it to her. Sorry, I said. I guess I was already in enough trouble without adding to it. And yes, it's cold. Which way to the execution? She graced me with another of her tiny smiles. It's nothing so bad as that. Lenora is in her office. Come with me. We went across an antique Chinese rug with a pagoda scene against a cobalt blue background and up to an office door that was flanked by matching three-foot-high vases glazed in the same cobalt color. My escort knocked softly on the door and then pushed it open without waiting for a response. The room inside was dominated by a carved rosewood desk as big as Napoleon's tomb. Behind the desk sat a tiny woman in a tailored suit with jade jewelry at her ears, wrist, and neck. Her dark hair was pulled back in a cruel-looking bun that didn't get within shouting distance of flattering. It was hard to guess her age. She might have been a severe-looking 40 or a well-preserved 60. She rose as we entered and put her hand out across the desk for me to shake. I had to come right to the edge and lean far across to grasp it. Mr. Reardon, I presume. She twitched her mouth open to display her front teeth in an expression that looked more like a bearing of fangs than a smile, then said, You're late. Yes, I... Never mind. Please have a seat. The door pulled close behind me and I glanced over my shoulder like an idiot in the weak hope that I hadn't been left alone with her. But of course I had. I sat down in a carved rosewood chair next to a matching table with a Chinese tea service laid out. Listen, Miss Lee, I began, about your window. My voice trailed off as I realized the dragon lady was still standing behind the desk peering down at me. She looked me over carefully and then after a moment sighed and returned to her high-backed chair. You know how I judge a man? By his deeds? By his shoes. That was going to be my next guess. A man who doesn't pay attention to his shoes doesn't pay attention to other details. He is lazy, and lazy men do not become prosperous. I looked down at my scuffed shoes and self-consciously positioned my feet under the chair. Look, Ms. Lee. Mrs. Lee, please. Look, Mrs. Lee, I'm sorry about your window and all, but being a community-minded person, I would hope that you would appreciate the greater good I was trying to accomplish by catching the ATM thief. I'm betting your insurance will cover the expense, and if it doesn't, I suppose we could discuss damages, but I don't see the need for this dressing down. And, for your information, lazy men do not run around after backhoes at two in the morning. Misguided ones, perhaps, but not lazy. She looked at me with eyes that were tinged with something, but damned if I could make it out. Amusement, perhaps. You misunderstand me, Mr. Reardon, was all she said. She gestured at the table beside me. Would you pour the tea? I fumbled the delicate porcelain teapot around and managed to get the tea into the matching cups without breaking anything. I picked up the cup closest to her with the intention of passing it over, then hesitated, wondering if I was supposed to doctor it with something first. She was miles ahead of me. Chinese tea never contains sugar, milk, or lemon. Rightio. 
I stood and placed the cup on the desk in front of her. I hoped getting to the point was somewhere on the agenda, because character assassination and butler duties were getting to be a drag. I dropped back into my chair and picked up my tea to sample it. It was good. She sipped at hers, leaving a purpley red mark from her lipstick on the rim of the cup. I say you misunderstand me because I'm not concerned about the window. If I chose to be concerned, it would be about the $8,000 ceramic bowl that was also destroyed. I felt the heat rise to my cheeks. I hadn't considered that anything else in the store had been in harm's way. I didn't ask you here to discuss damages, she continued. I ask you here to thank you. I am a community-minded person, and I am also a minority owner in the Bank of Canton and several other San Francisco financial institutions. I contributed to the reward fund, so I'm gratified that it motivated you to prevent the theft of our ATM. She raised her cup in a little toast. So, thank you. To say that I hadn't seen this one coming was putting it mildly. Er, uh, you're welcome, I managed. But I didn't actually catch the thief. No, not yet. We will be very pleased to pay the reward to you when you do. Okay. I shifted in my chair. I had the feeling there must be another size 6 pump ready to drop. Was there anything else? She hugged the cup to her chest with both hands as if to draw warmth. Yes, there was. You followed the recent city elections, of course. Although I hadn't voted, it was hard to live in the city and not be aware of them. The mayoral contest had been the big ticket item, with three major candidates vying to take over for the outgoing incumbent, Charlie Hill. The favorite was Hill's hand-picked successor, Hunter Loudon. Young and handsome, Loudon was a political moderate. He was popular with business, particularly the tourist industry, because of his tough stand on the homeless problem, but he still retained Hill's affinity with labor, including the big unions and city government like the transit workers. To the right of Loudon was Alan Chow. He was a conservative businessman involved in retail. He had the support of the downtown business interests, including banking and real estate, and was popular in the predominantly Chinese neighborhoods of the city, like Chinatown, Sunset, Richmond, and Vistacon Valley. These had gone for Hill in previous elections, but were looking this time to put a candidate of their own in office. Lenora Lee was a big backer of Chow. Finally, there was Mike Padilla. Padilla was a firebrand lawyer from the Green Party who was interested in controlling development and improving the lot of the citizenry in San Francisco's poorer neighborhoods, like the Mission and Hunter's Point. His base was built in those neighborhoods, but he had other supporters throughout the more liberal districts, like the Haight and the Castro. The handicapping before the election had Loudon winning by a wide margin, Chow garnering a respectable tally, but less than what would be required to force a runoff, followed by Padilla with a single-digit percentage of the vote. The handicapping, it turned out, was pretty much wrong. Loudon and Padilla split the vote 45% to 40%, and Chow ended up in the single-digit zone. A runoff election was scheduled in early December for Loudon and Padilla to duke it out. I nodded at the woman across the desk. Sure, I said. I followed the elections. Your candidate lost. The dragon lady frowned. Don't be impertinent. Yes, Mr. Chow lost. And to be honest, I did not really expect him to defeat Loudon. But I was at least hoping you would force a runoff and perhaps encourage Loudon to include more of our thinking in his platform. Now I will be happy if we simply manage to defeat Padilla. 
I don't really have a dog in this fight, but it seems pretty obvious that you and the rest of Chow's supporters are going to go as a block to Loudon. Even those few percentage points should be enough to push him over the top. Not if the election is rigged. I laughed. Mrs. Lee, I felt like Alice down the rabbit hole ever since I walked in here. What could possibly make you think the election will be rigged? And what, if you don't mind my asking, does it have to do with me? I'm afraid the runoff will be rigged because I'm convinced the November election was. I want you to figure out who did it, how it was done, and prevent it from happening in December. I blinked at her. Do you want fries with that, too? Please. It is not as fantastic as it sounds. As you probably know, the city installed touchscreen voting machines for this election. My computer experts tell me there are a hundred ways to tamper with these machines, and very little in the way of audit controls to detect the tampering. I also have election experts who've done statistical analysis of historical voting patterns in the city, as well as racially motivated voting behavior. And what happened in the November election is completely inconsistent with past elections. A small example is that Padilla actually captured 34% of the vote in Chinatown. Impossible. I wasn't sure what to make of her comments about touchscreen voting, but I agreed with her assessment of Padilla's chances in this neighborhood. Okay, I said cautiously, but that still doesn't explain what you expect to accomplish by hiring me. Why not use your experts? Or better yet, have Chow protest the election and trigger a formal investigation. Isn't that the way election irregularities are supposed to be handled? Chow is a weak-willed idiot. And I bet his shoes are scuffed too. She slammed her teacup down on the desk, sloshing tea over the side. Mr. Reardon, I may have been wrong about you when I implied you were lazy, but I am developing some good ideas for new labels to apply. Please do me the courtesy of hearing me out without further injections of sarcasm. As I was about to say, Chow refuses to protest the election. He's afraid of being labeled a conspiracy theorist and hurting his chances in future campaigns. May I ask why you selected me then? I mean, apart from the fact we ran into each other. I've done my research. I've talked to some of your former clients and contacts I have in law enforcement, I know you've successfully handled some high-profile cases involving technology. I'm offering you $1,000 a day until the election, which is less than a week from now, plus a bonus of $20,000 if you discover the person or persons behind the fraud. My bank balance was so low it would fit under a lizard, so $1,000 a day was going to be hard to pass up. But despite my putative success with technology cases, I hardly felt qualified. I appreciate the offer, I said, but I know nothing about touchscreen technology. In fact, when it gets right down to it, I'm pretty much a technophobe. I wouldn't know where to begin with something like this. You begin with the appointment I set up for you this afternoon with Professor Ballou at Stanford University. He's a computer science and an expert on touchscreen voting fraud. He can provide all the expertise you need. In the end, this isn't really about technology. It's about investigative skills and the ability to get in someone's face until he or she gives you the information you want. Based on this interview, you seem like you'd do that well. I thought about it for a moment. Assuming there was actually anything to be found, I still had zero conviction that I'd be able to uncover it, but I couldn't see walking away from the easy money. I also knew I could lean on my friend and sometime assistant, Chris Duckworth, to help me with the technology aspects. 
All right, I said. I'm game. The dragon lady brought a hand up to the jade pendant around her neck. The stone was the size of a hockey puck. She rubbed the surface of the jade and produced another fang-bearing smile. Excellent. My daughter has a check for your retainer and the details of the appointment with Professor Baloo. Your daughter? The dragon lady actually laughed this time. Yes. Are you surprised? Her name is Lisa. She was Miss Chinatown last year. When I was slow to respond, she came around the desk to escort me to the door. I rushed to return the teacup to the table and stood to walk with her. Good luck, she said, and put her hand out to shake goodbye. I'd like regular reports. You can phone them into Lisa, and I'll follow up if there's anything critical. Roger that, I said before she hustled me out the door and back into the reception area. Lisa was sitting at a smaller rosewood desk off to one side. Music came from a stereo on the desk, and I recognized the tune as Things Ain't What They Used To Be from the Ellington Songbook. She looked up as I approached. Did you take the job? She made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Congratulations, then. I'm sure you'll do well. I came to a stop at the corner of the desk and stared down at her. It was hard to get over what a stunner she was. You and your mother are much more confident on that point than I am. I nodded at the stereo. You a jazz fan? Her face brightened. Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. Just the old stuff, though. My dad was a band leader and he got me hooked. He used to play in the restaurant downstairs. Really? What instrument does he play? He played drums. He called himself the Chinese Buddy Rich. She smiled at the memory and looked over my shoulder to the view of the bay, not really seeing it. He passed away some time ago. I'm sorry to hear that. An awkward moment went by. I caught her eye again and blurted, I'm playing jazz bass in a jazz quartet tomorrow night at Shanghai 1930. You should come and see me. She gave me a broad smile that nearly floated me out the Golden Gate. First with the higher plane stuff, she said, and now with the invitations. You're a fast mover, Mr. Reardon. August. All right, August. I'll think about it. In the meantime, you need to get a move on if you're going to make your appointment with Professor Ballou. She opened a drawer to extract a business envelope. This has a retainer check, directions to Dr. Blue's office, and contact information for us. Including your phone number? Including my office phone number. She stood and snatched my coat from where it lay in a chair next to her desk. She passed the coat and the envelope over. Now I think you should go, she said, before you work yourself up to a marriage proposal. I bowed in what I hope was a chivalrous fashion. If marriage be premature... I said, perhaps a token of your esteem that I may be reminded of you on my quest. A kiss, for instance. She brought a hand to her mouth to suppress a laugh and looked around her desk. Her eyes settled on a pad of post-it notes. She peeled one off and stuck it to my lapel. There, good night. You shall bear my royal colors. I looked down at the droopy yellow square and shook my head. I wonder if this is how St. George got started. I made my retreat to the elevator, stepped inside, and then turned to look at her. You've got your cultures confused, she called out as the doors were closing. St. George slayed the dragon. You're on her payroll. You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, 
often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.